So over the past week and a half, both my wife and my five-year-old son have had surgery. Thankfully, these were minor surgeries and not major surgeries. And thanks be to God, they're recovering well. Please continue to pray for them that they'll continue to recover at an accelerated rate. But as you can imagine, our whole world over the past two weeks has been kind of tipped upside down. Just because there's all kinds of crazy things that happen when you um, have to go to the hospital, have a surgery, get patched up, and come back home and begin to recover. So today's going to be a bit of a different podcast in that I've not been able to write or produce any episodes over the past couple of weeks as per normal. So in its place, I'm going to be uh, posting a message that I gave at the Youth Ministry Training Event in 2016 put on by the UPCI Youth Ministries. Now, before we segue into the message, there's a really funny backstory. It's actually kind of an embarrassing backstory, but I thought I might as well share it with you. And uh, those of you that preach know that just about anything that can go wrong uh, will at some point in your preaching ministry go wrong. And I thought I was going to be prepared. I was going to be prepared for whatever happened. You know, I'd been a youth pastor for a bit, grew up in a church plant, serving in a church and that's in a downtown core of a rough area of my city. And I thought, man, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready for whatever, whatever comes my way. And, um, but, but I, I wasn't ready for what happened. Number one, I was a little nervous that day because uh, I had to close out the event and it's one of the you know biggest honors of my life to have been able to preach at this particular event. And, uh, but anything that could have went wrong that day went horribly, horribly wrong for me that day leading up to the time of the message. Um, the worst of which was I got the absolute worst food poisoning that I have ever got in my entire life. Now, I'm a food guy. I like to try local food and local restaurants. And sometimes, let's be honest, you're rolling the dice a little bit. Now, when you go to a chain restaurant, you know it's going to be bland and without flavor whatsoever, but at least you know they will have microwaved all of the bacteria right out of that food. Uh, this was not one of those places. This was like a famous, iconic local spot in Nashville, and uh, we all went and we ordered. I was with the, some guys from my church. We'd driven up together, and and uh, we were like, we're going to go, and it's going to be so cool. We're going to have this great experience. And I'm like, man, it'll be just great just to relax with some really great guys before I have to have to preach. I've been jumbled up and nervous for this event. And and my friend Aaron, um, he decided to get the watermelon ribs, and uh, they looked amazing. And he was like, man, these ribs are incredible. Adam, I know you like ribs. Would you like to try some of these ribs? And I was like, would I? Of course I would love to try those watermelon ribs, except here's the problem with the ribs. Something was wrong with the pig meat on those ribs, and uh, I don't know if they didn't cook them right, store them at the right temperature, or if the dude who made them just didn't wash his hands on a regular basis. I, I don't know, but within 45 minutes, I was more sick than I had ever been in my entire life. And pork food poisoning is the absolute worst kind of food poisoning to get because it's parasitic. And Anyway, I get back to my hotel and I'm a mess. I'm an absolute mess. I'm throwing up. Uh, it's, it's the absolute worst. And so I text 
uh, DJ Hill was the speaker liaison for the event, and he is the absolute man. And and so I texted him, and I was like, I'm I'm in a rough shape. And so he came to my room with Gatorade, gravel, ginger pills, Pepto Bismol. All of the medicines that you give someone when they are deathly ill, he he went and got them in a shopping bag, and you know he kind of like put them through this little crack in the door that I had opened up. I guess he was worried I may have been contagious, and so he he gave them to me, and then and then um, I got ready and I went to church, but. He took one look at me when I got got to church that night, and he was like, uh, "He comes up. He has this thing. He always says, hey, you need anything? You need?'" And then he's like, "You need any, you need a bucket. A bucket is what you need. What you need is a bucket." And so he actually went and hid a bucket on the platform in a closet just in case I got sick in the middle of my message. And the service uh, took off, and it was wonderful. It was amazing. The worship was incredible, and. I was still feeling pretty rough, and uh, when I went and I took the the pulpit, I kind of gave a signal to the band to keep to keep playing and singing, not because I wanted to sing, but because the moment I got to that pulpit, the whole room went black and my hands went numb, and I was like, "This is not, this is not good," and so I was praying like inside my heart. I was like, "Lord, do not let me pass out in front of this executive team. Do not let me pass out." in front of 500 youth pastors, and please, God, do not let me get sick all over Brother Becton's pulpit. Pastor Becton is um, is my elder. I should not be behind his pulpit. I should, I, I should, he should be preaching this, and I should be listening and taking notes. What am I doing up here? I do not want to vomit all over Brother Becton. I was, it was bad. I, it was, it was bad. I was sick, and thankfully, the um, the Lord, the Lord helped me and, uh, God moved and I preached except I don't remember anything that I said. And so I actually had to watch the video, which is the audio that I'm going to share with you. I had to listen to this message twice to kind of get recall of what happened, uh, because I don't remember anything that happened during that message because I was so, I was so sick and so under the weather, except for, Except for one thing, I did remember one part, and that was as I was leaving the stage, I passed out. And so thank you, Billy Haley, for catching me as I fell, forever cementing our friendship for eternity uh, because you caught me and carried me like a large adult baby uh, back to the front pew where I sat until... Jordan Ansley came and got me and uh, illegally drove the rental van because he only had his learner's permit at the time back to the hotel and to my partner in food poisoning, Aaron, I am so sorry that we left you behind so I could go preach. Aaron was sick. He got he was unconscious when we got back, but oh, the call of God. And he's still my friend today. He's an awesome guy. I'm so thankful for him. Anyway, that's the story behind this message. All in all, I'm, I'm posting it because it flows with the essence of season three and it sets the stage for what we're going to do over the next three episodes after this as we're going to deconstruct culture's influence on our hearts and minds and we can begin to live and learn and lead more like Jesus. So without any further ado, here is what to do when the world burns. It was 11.20 a.m. 
in London on June the 18th, 1944. It was a period of terrible and totalitizing war when all of the world seemed a mix of fire and smoke as Hitler swept through Europe, toppling nation after nation with his blitzkrieg warfare, wreaking havoc and stilling terror. Nation after nation collapsed, and there was only one left to the east, and that was England. On the screens, you see the attack on England. Now the city at the center of it all, the city of London is under siege. And in the midst of a Sunday morning aerial invasion, with sirens blaring, chaos reigning, Pastor Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones stood before his congregation. He was a few hundred feet from Buckingham Palace. But as the bombs fell that day, he sought the ministry of a higher kingdom. It was a frightening time in the city of London. Remote-controlled bombing of the city had begun only days before, and there were tremendous casualties. 10,000 in one week were slain by the terror on these screens. However, as the bombs fell, the doctor was not to be deterred. They called Churchill the Bulldog of England, Perhaps that name was misplaced because on this Sunday morning the whole church could hear the Stuka, the infamous Luftwaffe dive bomber with its Hitler-designed Jericho trumpet engine. It screamed louder and louder, but Dr. Lloyd-Jones had already begun to pray. He'd begun his long prayer, his pastoral prayer, the prayer the preacher prays over the word before he begins to preach. And as the Luftwaffe screamed in the distance, he did not stop. The wine grew overhead. It grows so loud that it drowned him out. So he paused. And all of the congregation held their breath. And then the bomb fail. There was a massive explosion and debris fell from the ceiling. The structure of the chapel cracked. One woman had closed her eyes moments before as she gripped the pew in front of her and when she opened she saw white dust from the plaster walls and ceiling covering her parishioners. And she thought this is it. Hitler has finally killed me and now I am in heaven. But they were not in heaven. They were still the church that Sunday morning, the congregation rose in a panic as they stared in the direction of the pulpit, looking to their pastor, waiting to see how he would react. Would he weep? Would he run? Would he panic? He would not. With sirens screaming, the doctor closed his eyes and he resumed his prayer. And at the close, he told his people to move closer to the front. A deacon went up and dusted off the podium and returned to his seat. And Lloyd-Jones resumed his place at the front of the congregation and immediately opened his Bible and without missing a beat, 
though cracks snaked up the walls, though Hitler was bombarding his city with a cacophony of terror, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones began to preach in the text for that day was June 20th, which reads in context with verse 21. But you, beloved, building up your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And this remarkable scene, we witness a stunning portrait of public courage. But more importantly, we find a picture of Christian ministry, apostolic ministry in a fallen world. That even as the world burns, the student pastor and his or her team lead the church to continually build up itself in the power of the Holy Ghost. If you have not noticed already, this world is absolutely on fire. And students and young adults, they wander in the haze, trying to make sense of themselves, of right and of wrong and of God. Spiritual darkness like a thick acrid smoke seeks to choke what glimmer of spiritual desire lays in the souls of the unconverted while at the same time endeavoring to blind the spiritual eyes of the church by keeping us worldly. The flock of Jesus Christ in the 21st century is threatened not by lions or bears or wolves but by false religion, false doctrine, ungodly practices and the lusts of the flesh not to mention the principalities and powers that work in the high places of our communities but there is a crisis of leadership in the 21st century amidst all that is going on see the bombs are falling the cracks have rippled up the sides of our culture and a shaken congregation of students and hyphens stares back at us Looking for answers. Looking for our response to the world in which we live this day that we are leading them in. They're looking to us. So will we turn and run? What will we do in the face of the greatest cultural shift since the French Revolution? What will we do in the face of moral perversion and the increasing secularization of American culture? What are we going to do? They look at us with wide eyes and terrified faces. How do we respond to the transgender movement? How do we respond to homosexuality? How do we respond as the church when we find ourselves no longer invited to the seat of political influence that we once have and we feel like we are being pressed more and more underground than ever before and we're trying to make sense of ourselves? What will we do? Let me say very clearly, I don't believe I stand before a group of apostolic leaders who will duck and cover run or quit 
I don't believe that you are going to shatter into an emotional heap. I believe that you have every bit of resolve and every bit of your mind made up that I don't care if the gates of hell march themselves right into our student ministry room. I am not going anywhere. The fact that you showed up and the fact that you spent this money and the fact that you drove or you flew all this way lets me know that you are serious about confronting the spirit of darkness in this present culture. I believe that you are here because you've got the guts to stand in the face of perversion. You're not going to be like other church leaders in the 1400s that collapsed and compromised you're going to say oh God our hearts are committed to you and your word but hear me I do believe that some of us despite our resolve stand frozen in place no we're not quitting got our minds made up we're not throwing in the towel we sure don't want to compromise But we're unsure of our identity in this day. We got our mind made up that we're going to lead this generation. Our resolve is not to be questioned for sure. We are unsure of the role that we play in this present hour. Because we live in a world, hear me carefully, where the office of student, youth, whatever title they put on you, the office of church leader or youth ministry team member, It's woefully misunderstood. See, there are voices hollering in your direction every single day that you serve. They're hollering their demands at you. Claiming that they know best. They know how we should be. And what the voice of God is calling apostolic leadership to young people should be. We got people like even sometimes our own students. Want us to be cool and not awkward. To build them programs to keep them entertained and also not offend their friends with our doctrinal distinctives. Not be offensive, to be tolerant. So they said, can we not really talk about that here? Maybe we can have a private Bible study for the church kids. Let's not not make that stand publicly. Can we do that, Pastor? Because I I don't want to freak out my friends. I want them to like me and I don't want them to think that I'm weird Sometimes the people hollering in our direction are even parents who want us to give them a night off by offering good religious babysitting to keep their kids interested in church, to be responsible not to them but for them and their salvation and their walk with God. Unless, of course, it's football season, you know, or hockey, eh? Because then we have to understand that, you know, sports offers great values just like our youth service does. So we're going to split our time as a family between what you do and his opportunity to get into a good school with a scholarship. And with all of this is also our own internal pressure. As we compare ourselves, not only amongst ourselves with our youth rooms and our graphic design prowess and our production value, but we also compare ourselves with the larger church world at times without pause for sober second thought to really think and comprehend if we're actually trying to build the same thing as they are. Too many student pastors and leaders, despite their passion, their commitment, and their resolve, have exchanged their vocational birthright 
for a bowl of lentil stew of management skills, strategic plans, leadership courses, therapeutic techniques, and social media strategies. Now, I'm not against all of them. We do brand audits at our church, but we're talking about how you identify yourself when you look in the mirror every single day. So there is pressure as multiple pairs of eyes stare back at us in these moments where our cultural-induced numbness is shook awake by the realization that our world is at war. And we're not sure where we're supposed to be. Can I tell you here today that you are not an event planner. You are not a social media strategist. You are not an adolescent babysitter or a speed date organizer. I am here with a word from God to speak into the haze of what has become one of the most complex and confusing job descriptions in Christian ministry. I'm here with clear direction from the Lord to speak from God to the student pastors, leaders, and ministry teams of the young people of the United Pentecostal Church to challenge you and perhaps even admonish you to call you to return to the biblical function of apostolic leadership as defined by Paul who wrote in Colossians 1, 28, 29. He said, this is who we are. Him we preach. This is our role. This is our identity. Him we preach. Warning every man. Teaching every man in all wisdom. That we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this and I also labor striving according to his working which works and me mightily hear me tonight above the roar of social media over the din of pop culture over the clamor of religious and spiritual celebrities that are more intent on getting your kids to follow them on Instagram than building the kingdom above all of that noise has got to be your voice you've got to understand what your voice is your voice is to proclaim Christ your voice is to speak Jesus you may do other things sure you may have another title on your team but when you boil it down we are here to proclaim Jesus Christ my mission tonight is to compel you to reclaim your place in the world as spiritual leaders of the church of the living God to be a prophetic voice teaching and preaching the word of the Lord and demonstrating the power of the Holy Ghost to this 21st century see the text that we read from and if we can throw it up on the screen occasionally and Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. So the Apostle Paul was writing. He was writing to a church that lived very much in a world like our day. See, we're becoming more like the days of the Apostles than ever before. So before we, this is free, we throw up our hands and scream, the sky is, is falling and the church is lost. Remember, the church had its greatest revival in the midst of its greatest spiritual battles. And we are just getting back to those moments of persecution and oppression. Brother Norris said there is more people that have been martyred for Jesus Christ in the past 25 years than in the entirety of church history. Let me tell you something, folks. The world is at war with our faith. There is a systematic, I believe, spiritual oppression. But never before have there been more people that are filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what. 
When the world stands against the church and drives us underground, it does something to us. When we become more apostolic, it does something to us that I think is good for us. It causes us to define what our values really are and what our place really is in the world. Hear me today. You're not there to plan events. You're not there to market stuff. You're not there to babysit. You're there to proclaim Jesus to a world that is lost and a world that is broken. Hallelujah. So Colossians was a young new church that faced a multifaceted attack on their faith. So there was a temptation to pull ideas from all sorts of places. Some of the church were drawn away by the impressive rhetoric of preachers and teachers who were not adherents to the apostolic faith as expressed by Paul and his contemporaries. These were teachers who looked good and they sounded good, but they denied holiness. See, they had rituals and they had holy days and they had things that made them look like the church, but they did nothing to set up boundaries to protect their people against the lust of the flesh. The intellectual elite, the other group, said, you may continue to worship your gods and your goddesses, if that's Jesus, all good. May me even uh, show up to a couple of your services. But at the same time, I need you to come over and hang out with our gods too. That way no one really gets offended. See, Paul lived in a world that said, believe what you want. Just don't push it on anyone or say yours is the only right way. Say it's right for you, but let's not make it universal. Don't call people to submit or change for a god. See, because the gods in the Colossian church, the, the days of the empire... The gods, I was not for the gods. The gods were for me. About getting what I want. I'm not for them. They're here for me. So don't be a weirdo. And, And, you know, go do your cult thing in your church or your catacombs or your open field. I think it's strange. I think it's weird. But you go ahead and you do that. But also come to our parades and our festivals and participate in our entertainment complex because we need you to as well celebrate the values of our culture. See, the Roman Empire didn't hang Peter upside down while they nailed him to a cross because he said Jesus was God and they were so dogmatic that the other gods were God. They really didn't care. The problem and the threat of the church on the Roman Empire and the city of Coloss was that the church disrupted the social order by daring to tell someone that their way of viewing the world was wrong. That was considered threatening, evil, and intolerant. Does that sound familiar at all? See, it is in this world that the Apostle Paul writes to the churches to his mission, his authority, and his calling. And since we live in a day that is so much like the Apostle Paul's, in this passage, I see me and I see you. And so I want to walk you through for a few moments the various pieces of Colossians chapter 1, 28 to 29 so that you can embrace as we leave in this house with worship and prayer and some celebration, that you leave with a very clear picture of what you're supposed to do with all that has been poured into your life over the past 24 or so hours. 
See, in this text, we answer three questions. We answer the what, we answer the why, and we answer the how of the Apostle Paul. And in that process, we understand the what, the why, and the how of apostolic young leaders in this generation. So here's what Paul does. He says, Him we preach. Verse 28 says, Paul preached Jesus. His preaching content was Jesus Christ. Everything started or ended with either who Jesus was, what he, had, what he had done, or what he was currently doing by the power of the Holy Ghost in the church. Everything started. You cannot find Apostle Paul in one book of the Bible where he's talking about any moral behavior, any ethical change from apostolic standards of dress to sexual morality without tying it somehow to the cross of Jesus Christ or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because he preached Jesus Christ. We preach Jesus Christ. Not anything other than Jesus and His Word. We are not moral pragmatists. We are not purveyors of politically conservative culture. We are preachers of Jesus Christ and His gospel. I'm not trying to get you to vote for a political party. I'm get, trying to get you to repent of your sins. I'm not trying to get you to buy into my way of taxation. I'm trying to save your soul from hell. Hear me, we preach Jesus Christ. We're not attempting to propagate North American culture on the world. I'm not trying to make you more Canadian. I'm trying to make you more like Jesus Christ. Before you write me off today and you say, well, I'm not the primary communicator. Hear me. We're all preaching. Whether you're in a class, whether you're at Starbucks talking to somebody who's having a hard time, whether you sit beside behind the laptop and you work after effects and you make graphics, hear me, whatever you do has got to tie back to the fact that I am here to proclaim Jesus Christ. Every job, every role, proclaim Jesus. Hallelujah. But as Paul continues, we see a dynamic tension arise. The function and form of how he proclaims Christ. As he tries to strike a careful balance between the roles of prophet and teacher. These are dual roles. While you may lean more to one or the other, you've got to push yourself into. Because he says, whom we preach, warning every man, warning everybody, in, in the preaching of Jesus Christ, in this proclamation of the Holy Ghost, at times there is a warning that comes from the overflow of a prophetic unction. See, the prophets of old took the law of God and applied it to contemporary situations with stunning clarity and powerful anointing. When I say prophetic, I don't mean ethereal and weird. I don't mean out there that no one can understand. I mean a Holy Ghost 
anointed exposition of the scriptures that is laser focused on the world your kids live in every single day. The people and the culture that God has called you to reach into. See, when we look at the Old Testament prophets, we don't see guys that just bounced around and never, never land. But what they always did, no matter how brilliant the vision or how spectacular the the experience they had with the Lord, they always went back to the law and the prophets that they had had up to that point. And they said, see, Isaiah said this. See, Moses said this. And in our culture, we are not doing that. And as a result, we must turn to Jesus. We must turn to the Lord and repent. They spoke to specific issues and they called out behaviors. They shone a bright light on the darkness of the culture that had been invading people's relationship with the Lord. That was choking out their covenant worship. Choking out their anointing and their place to be redeemers of the world. Preparing the world for Jesus Christ. And so this warning was an admonishing, it was a reproving, it was a convincing of error. And we must do the same where we peer by the Holy Spirit into the Word of God and we cry out to the Lord, God don't just inspire me to say something, but help me apply it to the world that my kids live in. Because we can't afford to be vague, we can't afford to be obtuse, we can't afford to be out there. People have got to know where the Bible stands, they've got to know what Jesus thinks. So in this statement of purpose, the Apostle Paul admits there is an element of confrontation in apostolic leadership. On the way down, our group of gentlemen came with us and we listened to J.T. Pugh's message, Your First Night in Hell, and sucked the air out of that room. It was uncomfortable. It didn't feel good. Sometimes it's okay for the room to get awkward. Because we're going to have to call out some stuff. I'm not saying we'd be rude. I'm not saying we'd be mean. I'm not saying we'd be harsh. But with broken and contrite hearts, we speak to the sin that is ravaging the world and we declare to the young people that God has called us to disciple under no circumstances should that be in your life as an apostolic. While we always must speak with hope and the Holy Ghost, there at times will be tension in the room. Let me just, let me, can I just be real with you for a few moments? Is that okay? I'm just going to get in the van later and I'm going to drive back to Canada and then there'll be snow and dog sleds and Canadian bacon and Tim Hortons and who knows when you'll have a chance to see me again. But let me just let me just be real for you, okay? Because the world I live in, it's got the we had world pride in Toronto, 45 minutes down from my house, 1.5 million people. We've got a host of other things going on in our culture that are absolutely crazy that are coming to your culture, coming to a town near you, as I see the same secular pagan spirit that has a stranglehold on my country, sweeping in from the east and the west and the north, sweeping into the center of America and throughout the south. I see that same spirit. And let me just tell you some stuff that we can't afford to be vague on. We cannot afford to be vague about sexuality. We cannot afford to be vague about gender distinction. If you never talk about standards of holiness and dress and modesty, you will have problems with sexual immorality and pornography in your youth group. 
If you never confront immodesty, one day you will be forced to confront promiscuity. If you never confront gender distinction, you will be forced to confront gender homogeny. If if you never confront hair, you will be forced to confront rebellion. If you never confront how much time we spend on Netflix, you will be forced to confront the idol of entertainment that stands between the souls of young people and your voice in their life. We cannot afford to be vague. We must speak with clarity. We must warn, not out of hate, not, not out of anything that is mean or harsh, but we must speak because we love and we do not wish to see anyone lost. Sometimes, I'm sorry. I apologize, I'm Canadian, that's what we do. I'm, I think... Sometimes we're too quick to rush to the, the happy dance and the altar call. I'm all for crazy praise. Seriously, come to Ontario. It's, it's, it's bananas. I mean, it's, we'll have praise breaks and then we'll sit everybody down and preach and then we'll run around the church some more and it'll go on. And I mean, don't get us started if we start doing some old throwback Jamaican songs. And the night is, is going to go on forever and ever and ever. And we're going to have a great time. I'm all for worshiping the Lord with worship. But let's not rush the moment where people struggle in prayer until they submit to the Spirit of God. The altar call isn't a place for us to feel good. The altar call is a place for transformation. And sometimes when you have warned people, I've, I've been all sorts of places where when somebody's crying and their head is down and you can see the repentance, we want to come, we want to shake them, we want to shake their head, rub their chest, run our knuckles up and down their sternum, do anything that we can do to help them to move, to jump and to dance because somehow we feel like they haven't experienced the Lord in the service if that doesn't happen. Let me tell you what, sometimes the greatest thing that a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old that's you know been involved with promiscuity or they're in the web of internet pornography, one of the greatest things they can do is come to the front, come to the altar, and bury their face in a corner and not leave until every chain on their mind is broken. Let's not yank them up and get them worshiping until we know that they have transformed again. I'm not against praise. I'm not against worship. But worship comes from the overflow of a transformed heart. It's not an adrenaline rush. It's a response to what Jesus has done. My goodness, please sit. Uh, I'm, we're losing time here. Uh, so we preach Jesus. Everything is tied back to Jesus. Everything is tied back to what the Holy Ghost has done or is doing in the body of Christ and in the world today. And then we warn. We preach by warning. We preach by correction. We preach at times by rebuke in love. We tell people the truth. Love tells people the truth. And Paul says that we teach every man. This is instruction. In this proclamation, there is an explaining and instructing for how to live. Which for the Apostle Paul, all teaching rested on the revelation of the identity of the mighty God in Christ. 
In the power of baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Ghost is evidenced by speaking in other tongues and what that now means for Christ's body. See, we, we, we have that as a fundamental doctrine as an organization, and that's just not because we need a rallying cry for, to bring different people together. But so we find in Scripture that all instruction rests on how you see Jesus. I won't belabor this point because we talked about it in our session together, but apostolic doctrine informs apostolic life. See, our deepest core values and fundamental doctrines are not there to merely make us different on the wiki page of Western Christianity. They are templates and patterns for life. Life and death, eternal life, eternal death, depend on how we speak and tie everything back to Jesus Christ. And this isn't pragmatism. It's biblical doctrine as found in Scripture. See, pragmatism is the utilitarian garbage that often is paraded as biblical preaching in the celebrity preacher-driven megachurch culture that dominates North America and our interpretation of Christianity. And let me just say this. There is no way that you can build or I can build an apostolic student ministry that produces mature and involved disciples of Jesus Christ living a holy life by cutting and pasting the template of religious celebrities and their hipster churches. You cannot make disciples by command Z and command V, the ideology of people whose entire ministry has been built off emptying out other churches of their young people. Can't do it. We're fundamentally different. We are apostolic. And so we teach. We teach Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. Sometimes when we step up, we're warning. And we're waving a giant sign that says, don't go over there because over there is, is destruction. Other times we're coming to the front and there is not this warning, this prophetic voice. But we're sitting down and we're talking with people and we're saying, now that you are in Christ Jesus and now that you see Jesus as he is, now that you have been baptized into Christ and now that Christ is in you, this is how you're supposed to think. This is how you handle social media. This is how you deal with pressure when you're at school. This is how you handle cyberbullying. This is it. We're teaching and we're instructing and we're tying it back to how we as the apostolic church. So and the reason why that we preach and the reason why that we warn and the reason why that we teach is the same reason that the apostle Paul does. He says it's to present everybody as mature or as perfect disciples in Jesus Christ. The point of our proclamation, the warning in our teaching is discipleship. We are not building a spectator sport. We are not building and amassing a crowd to watch our professionals display. And I know you believe this, so please, please don't just take this from a heart that's been broken for the past six months about this service. When we get up and when we preach, we do it so that we can make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every word that comes out of your mouth, every conversation that you have, it's not random, it's not random, it's not happenstance, but it's purposeful. And it's intentional. So I preach Christ. I warn about the danger. And I instruct in apostolic life. So that I can present to the Lord Jesus Christ. People who are mature. Everything we are doing is designed to push students as complete in Christ. Everything we do. Resolves around the, the urgency of discipleship. 
Our entire model as the apostolic church compels people to be completely transformed by the power of the Spirit from postmodern pagans to holy living apostolic disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, perfecting their calling and their anointing and doing great exploits for the kingdom of God, whether it's in a P7 club, a hyphen group, or a CMI, or in something else that your church does. That is the goal of everything we do. You don't get up just to say something good so that the young people know how to attack the day. Everything you do is intentional so that one day when the trumpet sounds, you can hold hands with a whole generation of young people and march them up to the throne of Jesus Christ and present them to the Lord and say, God this is what I did with what you gifted me this is what I did with my calling see them you remember them they came from a broken home but now they have an intact family we changed the story see them remember them they were bound by pornography but now they love their wife and they are chaste and their relationship see this person here they were cyber bullied and they cut and they're at the point of suicide but I preached that all who are in Christ just like Paul did in Colossians are complete in him and therefore no one can judge us and no one can have power over us. See their arms still bear the scars of the cutting but if you can see behind them is a whole bunch more of broken people they have reached because God God I met the goal I met the vision I wasn't trying to have cool church I wasn't trying to have a neat youth group I wasn't trying to wow people on Instagram all I was trying to do was take a bunch of kids who are lost, messed up, broken, and in love with the world, and love them, and warn them, and teach them, and proclaim your word to them. So here they are, Jesus. Some of them are young. Some of them passed away before they had ever a time to build their family. Lord Jesus, some of them, God, now have multiple generations in the church. Wherever stage they're at, Lord, this is what I've done with what you've invested. This is why the Apostle Paul says that he did this with labor and was striving every time he wrote every time he spoke it was to present to Christ people that were being changed into the image of the Lord this is why he writes in verse 29 to this end I labor and here we find the how striving according to his working which works in me mightily Paul labored and toiled to bring about this result in the lives of everyone with whom he ministered. There are key words in the scripture that give us the how. First he said he labors. This is the word that was used to describe the sweat and the grind of a blue collar worker. Like a bricklayer or a roofer. A concrete pourer in our everyday construction in the 21st century it was the Someone who worked in the sun, whose hands were calloused, whose back was sore and whose skin was made leathery by the sun. The Apostle Paul, when he speaks of the urgency of his preaching, his warning, his proclamation of Jesus Christ, he says, I do this with labor. He said, striving, this is struggling, this is agonizing. This word was also a word used by people when they wanted to describe contending in an arena engaged in gladiatorial combat. It comes from the same root word translated in Colossians 2.1 as the word conflict. 
Apostle Paul said ministry is work. This preaching, this warning, this discipling it takes work. Ministry is work. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to work at this. We're going to have to embrace the grind. The unspectacular, non-Instagrammable hard work of teaching Bible studies, being present in people's lives in their darkest moments, giving direction at times when it's unappreciated, taking time off work so you can work on your series, kissing your babies goodnight, tucking your family in, and then going down into the basement and open up your Bible. And when you could be sleeping, you are studying. It's the hard toiling label, pushing yourself to be better, sacrificing to come to community. This takes work. The Apostle Paul says, discipling and preaching. It's a grind. It's a work. So how do you manage the pressure? How do you do it, Paul? Those in youth ministry are often in the most chaotic times of their own personal lives. As we are beginning at times, our families are trying to start a family or even find a spouse. We hold in our arms at times our first children. We make major life transitions in our 20s and in our 30s. So Paul... How did you manage the pressure? How did you handle this grind, this responsibility, the heavy weight that I feel in my heart right now as even I preach about this task? The Apostle Paul says, I do all of this. I do this striving, this grinding, this working, this fighting for the young people, for the church of Colossians, according to his working, which works in me mightily. That word working means power and action. In other words, Paul, how do you do all this striving, this laboring, this warning, this teaching? How do you do all this preaching and proclaiming with everything that you've got going on in your life with all of the person? How do I, well, I'm trying to figure out how to be a parent. How do I, well, I'm trying to work out boundaries with my time. How do I, well, I try to balance work, a secular job and, and my work at the church. How do I balance it all without burning my life out, without burning my family out? How do I do it? Well, Paul says that you boil it down to one little thing, the battery pack powering the operating system of the mission of the Apostle Paul was not the toil and struggle of his own human strength and ability but it was by the power of the Holy Spirit the working of God in this text the working of God's power is both a noun and is a verb it is the statement the stand that he makes but it is also the action through which he works he works in me mightily Paul says I'm locked in the cage I'm I'm in the floor of the gladiator. The lions are coming and the, the other gladiators are coming. The kingdom of darkness is coming and they're coming for my people. They're coming for those I lead. I'm in the cage. I'm, I'm in the, I see the lion. I see the one who's the tempter of my kids. I see him the tempter of your students. I see him as the tempter of your hyphens. And so I do all of this proclaiming with the same gritted violence and the same determination and fighting spirit as a gladiator fights to defend his life but Paul is not fighting to defend his life he is fighting to defend those who lead and he says I do this fighting by the power of the Holy Spirit who works in me mightily while we all must do better with boundaries emotional health maybe this is just me 
But uh, my greatest problem with fatigue and exhaustion is not that I don't have all of the good systems, and I, I have, we need to have good systems. I think our, our greatest problem with fatigue and burnout is we don't allow the Holy Spirit to be the one who does the work. We still act like the success of the church rides on our power and not his. See, leading young people is going to take some agonizing toil. It's going to take some blue-collar work ethic. It's going to take some grit and grind, and it may even involve some suffering. But you do not stand alone. Because if you will let him, God will anoint your efforts far beyond your ability and he will empower you supernaturally. You want to know why the Apostle Paul could go from shipwreck to preaching in a palace? It's because of his power who worked in him mightily. The Apostle Paul was one bent over, broke down, sick little dude. He was. He did not have a lot of natural strength. He did not have a lot of things going for him. But he did know how to get himself out of the way and let the Holy Ghost do the work through him. Can I tell you the secret to your greatest revival, the secret to your greatest impact, the, great, the secret to your greatest strength is when you and me, all of us together in the body of Christ, we take a big step back and we say, God, you do the work. God, you give me the words to say. God, you give me the wisdom in this situation. Lord Jesus, I'll study up prepare I'll do everything I can but at the end of the day it's got to be his power that works in you mightily because it is the anointing that separates our voice from all other voices calling after the hearts and minds of young people this is our greatest source of strength and this is our greatest distinctive it is the well of the spirit that we drink from that serves as our source of greatest power this is what makes you different from every other voice and every other influence is that you have the power of the creator of the universe working inside of you. Yes, they're creative. Yes, they got good speech writers. Yes, they've got good sitcom writers and set designers. But you've got the one thing that makes you different while you're in your little basement room like I was with garbage bags over the windows. You've got the power of the Holy Ghost and that is what is going to make the difference in your life the anointing is the well we drink from to sustain our efforts that we are spiritual leaders the well of identity is that we are spiritual leaders the message from God powered by the Holy Ghost you are a proclaimer ladies and gentlemen you are a disciple maker you warn of danger you speak grace, drench correction. You retrain minds to think like an apostolic instead of a pagan. And what drives your life? What drives your purpose? What drives the strength to be able to respond to that kid who keeps making the same mistake over and over again? What causes you to respond with love and with grace? What gives you the courage to address issues that you feel that you are not prepared to address and deliver them with the wisdom and the tact that will change the minds of people in the room is the power of the Holy Ghost. We preach 
We teach and we warn and this is our gargantuan task, the making of disciples. But we do not do this of our own power or of our own accord. We do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. My message to you tonight is that you've got to see yourself as you truly are. Otherwise, you will be tempted to self-identify as something other than who God needs you to be. And I understand there's so much more that goes on in a church. But what makes the difference from people who do similar things in your community is the fact that you speak from the overflow of apostolic anointing and from the revelation of apostolic power and apostolic doctrine. This is your distinctive. This is who you are. Uh, my in-laws, they, they went to Sri Lanka to go on a missions trip with incredible Prince Matthias, incredible man of God. And, uh, and my father-in-law told me this story in our last Skype call. And, uh, but an indigenous pastor was trying to go out and start a work. Was trying to go out and trying to go out and build a, a new apostolic church in the Hindu community. They didn't want him there. They didn't want what he wanted. They didn't want his ideas. They didn't want his doctrine. They didn't want his power. He moved into that little town into a little hut all by himself. In the middle of the night, some villagers got together, along with some of the other pagans, and they poured poison into the well of his little home. Someone, their heart was gripped with conviction, and conscience caught them, and they knocked on the door of that pastor, and they came in secret in the middle of the night. They said, the village has poisoned your well. Don't you dare drink it. If you do, you will surely die. Your children will die. Do you imagine the fear of those of us that are parents? I have a three-year-old little boy. He has an anaphylactic dairy allergy, which means that anytime he comes in contact, he ingests anything that's milk or cheese. If we don't get him to a hospital, we don't give him an EpiPen, he can die. He's got an anaphylactic shock a couple times and I can't describe to you the fear and grip your heart to watch your kid brush next to death. Can you imagine being that pastor? You're there to do the work of God. You're there to, you're there to do what God's called you to do. The one thing that is there to sustain your family, the one thing that is there to sustain what you're supposed to be doing, has been poisoned by a community of haters. So he called Brother Matthias on the phone. He said, Pastor, what are we going to do? Should I leave? Should I quit? Should I stop? Maybe what I should do is I should go to a well, somebody else's well, and I can get, I can get water from them. And that will sustain our family mission. Brother Matthias says, don't get any water from any other place. Don't draw. Don't drop your bucket into a well that is not your own because you will be beholden to them and other wells. You will owe them 
and you will be their slave the rest of your life. They'll have authority over you and they'll get to define what you're supposed to be doing in that community. So go to the well and take a little handful of salt, throw it in the water, just like the prophet did when somebody poisoned his water and grab hands with your family and worship the Lord with all of your heart. Then what, Brother Matthias? Then what are we supposed to do next? Brother Matthias laughs. Let's drink the water. What? Are you sure? You put your bucket in and drink the water. Your well will be fine. God declares it. This is what's sustaining your family. This is what's going to be the launching pad for your little mission and your little church. Drink the water. So he did. And people that day, when they came out onto their front lawn, they were peering out the windows, peering out from behind their curtains, waiting for the pastor at some point to at least develop a hard twitch and drop onto the ground. But to their dismay and their surprise, this pastor did not die. Every day he'd go to the well and pull it up again and he'd drink from it. And then he'd go back the next day and he'd reach his... And then his kids would come and they would come and they'd pull, up the, they'd pull up the bucket and they'd drink the well. And finally the community came to him in the middle of the night. They knocked on his door and they said, Why aren't you dead? And they said, We surrounded our well and we worshipped. And then we drank from them because our God has sustained us by his power. Revival broke out in that little community. And it was an amazing thing as there were miracles, signs, and wonders. But then a few months later, there came a drought in that little town. And every well but one dried up. Let's take a quick guess. Whose well still had water? And who was now beholden? the apostolic whom they sought to oppose with his message and his mission and his values they all lined up with their buckets said please pastor may we drink from your well hear me there is coming a collapse in the religious community where their wells were dry up and their churches will close. I'm not saying this with glee. I'm not saying we don't learn. I'm saying that we've got to understand there is a collapse coming. And when that collapse comes, I do not want to be beholden to somebody else's well. When another mega church celebrity gets caught, I don't want to be the awkward apostolic that's been feeding my entire ministry with water from a well that destroys leaders more than it makes them. Please, I, I don't, want to be, don't want to be offensive with this, but this is what the Lord compelled me to say. And I believe we've gone through a season where the enemy has told us our will was no good. I believe the young leaders of the apostolic church, my generation, those of 40 and under, 
You've gone through a season where in the middle of the night at some point there has been a lie spoken into our minds that has said, your will is not good enough. Some people believed them. Churches littered with my friends who had a fear of no longer being relevant, no longer being accepted, no longer being able to reach people. Felt it was impossible to grow a ministry or even plant a church by drawing water from their own well. And so they went out and they got another source. As such, my four friends are now beholden to the wells of another. I, I know I've gone a long time tonight, but and I've done my best to exposit a couple verses of scripture. It's really to lead you to this point in the service. Before we go home, before this worship team takes us to the throne, and I'm sure we're going to rejoice at the revival that God's going to give us at some point in this altar call. But right now I feel, I feel that challenge. To ask you, where is your well? What well are you drinking from? Did anything in your spirit resist when I talked about not being ashamed to talk about standards of dress in youth service or in discipleship classes? Was there a part of your heart or a part of your soul that said, I'm not sure I really want to talk about gender distinction. I'm not really sure if I feel comfortable really calling out those shows or those social media platforms because then people may think that I'm not being guest friendly. What well are you drinking from? When you look in the mirror every single day, what do you get up and say, I'm here to do? Where is the source? See, if you spend more time tinkering with your Facebook page than you do on your face in prayer, you've got the wrong well. If you spend more time designing your marketing strategy than your discipleship process, you've got the wrong well. Because one day, one day the pizza party well is going to dry up. The branding well will dry up. The leadership podcast wells will dry up. When that day comes, you better have something deeper. You better have something better. Otherwise, you'll come up empty. But if you can hear me today, out of the well that the enemy of your soul has told you is poisoned and will not work, will come a miracle of revival in this last day. It is so great. Our churches will not be big enough to contain them. I want to drink from the well that's sustained by the supernatural power of God. Because when collapse comes in my city, the world will line up. The thirsty will line up. And the only place where there is water left to drink, the only place where there is a spirit moving, the only place where there are signs and wonders. And no, we may not be as flashy as the other whales, but when the drought comes, there will be only one place to find water, and that is the apostolic church. And with all my heart, I want to be an apostolic church. Your will, you got to return to a drink from our whales. Wells of our theological worldview, 
wills of our non-negotiable values of Holy Ghost empowerment and demonstration. Our wills of holiness and righteousness, of modesty, gender distinction, and a carefulness with media. Your will is warning. Your will is teaching. Your will is proclaiming. Your will is the working of Christ in you, and He wants to work in you mightily tonight. So don't trade your will. Don't trade your anointing. It's time for you to cast off all other identities, young apostolic leader. It's time for you to quit trying to be like other people. It's time for you to be who God's called you to be in your community. God's gifted you to do the job. And that is what's going to change the world. Thus says the Lord of heaven and earth. Consecrate yourself to me. Consecrate yourself to me. Hold fast to the values of my word and the power of my spirit. For I am coming soon. I have separated the wheat from the tares. And I am now fanning the flames of revival. And I wish to use you, for as I have said to others, I say to you this day, what I used to do through a few, I shall now do through many. What used to be the gifting and the operation of a few shall now be the operation and the gifting of many. I will deposit into your spirit this night, says the Lord, my supernatural power. I have equipped you to do the work. Look not to the left, look not to the right, but do what I have called you to do. For I am coming soon. I have prepared my angels and I am coming soon to catch away my church. And now is the time of great last revival. Now is the time for the final outpouring of my spirit. Consecrate yourselves to me for I wish to use you in ways beyond your even comprehension. I got nothing left to say but if you want to come and pray. I need to I need to find a place of prayer. It's time for you to put the pressure down. It's time for you to put the expectations of fickle kids and complaining parents and it's time for you to hear the clarity of God through the haze of the business of your life. All throughout this week there has been one universal voice and that's to make disciples preach my word and work my spirit. It's time for you to resolve Thank you so much for listening. I hope this message has impacted you at least in some small part as it did me in the preparation. Serving in the context that that I serve in, very secular city, downtown core, so many hurting and broken people. One of the things that I have come to discover is that I tend to overcomplicate the gospel. I try to dress it up, make it look way prettier and way fancier than really what it needs to be. Often the most powerful, the most effective I can be is when I let Jesus be Jesus and I focus in on the things that only he can do and I put them on display in a big way. 
this podcast is going to serve as a launching pad over what we're going to be talking about over the next two or three. So please share. Please send me your comments. I read every one. I try to respond to every piece of feedback I receive. It's been amazing how much this podcast has grown over the past 60 days or so that we've been we've been live. It's been because of you, you buying into the content, you buying into the idea of the restorationist. So thank you so much for listening. Until next time, God bless.